The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 15. We're continuing to study John chapter 15. And you remember Jesus is giving specific instructions to his disciples. He wants them to know very important things uh, before he is arrested and before he is crucified. So this is, this is a very urgent moment. And in John chapter 15, there's debate whether or not Jesus is still in the upper room or whether he's on his way uh, over to the Mount of Olives. We don't really know, but regardless, it's, the, it's the, final, the final hours that Jesus has with his disciples. And if you look at verse 18, he gives uh, a startling statement to the disciples. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then skip down to verse 20. Look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So Jesus informs his disciples of a surprising perhaps reality that they will face. And it's a reality that all of Christ's disciples will one day face. And it's this reality of persecution by the world. He says, don't be surprised. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. Because here's what you need to know as a Christian. This, this surprises some people who become Christians. When you become a Christian, you are automatically in a battle. You're automatically in a battle. Imagine what it would be like if you just went to sleep and then you open your eyes and you found yourself on the Western Front during World War I and you're in uniform. I mean, you, you would be startled. You would be surprised. You, what am I doing here? And then there's this great cataclysmic war taking place in which there's casualties. And in some way, only on a, on a spiritual sense and in a grander sense, that's what the Christian life is like. When you become a Christian, all of a sudden, you're like, oh, but this is great. I've become a follower of Jesus. I believe in him. He's, he's promised to save me from hell and all my sins are forgiven. But then you find yourself in this war. And this war goes all the way back to the beginning. I want you to turn all the way over to Genesis chapter three. Turn all the way, this is the very front of your Bible. Verse 15, verse 15. Sometimes this verse is called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. It's the first place in the Bible that the gospel is preached. Look at verse 15. This is part of the curse that God gives to Satan, to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Question, who's the he that he's referring to? The Lord Jesus Christ. The offspring there, in some ways, it's, it's singular. It's, it's the Lord. The Lord is going to crush the head of Satan. And Satan will bruise the Lord's hill. That's the, that's the cross. Now, because of Adam's sin, all of humanity, this is the doctrine of original sin, all of humanity after Adam is in slavery and in bondage to the devil. To do, the, to do the devil's bidding. And we're gonna talk about more of that in a minute. And what God does is he redeems people 
out of the domain of Satan's world, out of Satan's kingdom. God redeems people throughout history. And what the, the way that he's able to do this is Jesus came into the world to pay the penalty for our sins so that Satan would no longer have an accusation against those for whom Christ died. This is 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So from Genesis all the way throughout history, what you see in the Bible is a battle that is taking place, a battle that is taking place between the seed of the serpent, those whom are the devils, and the seed of the woman, those who are godly. So a battle is taking place. So you keep going, you see Cain and Abel. What do you have? Abel has a righteous sacrifice. Why is it righteous? It's righteous because he worships in spirit, he worships from the heart, and he also worships in truth. It's a blood sacrifice. Cain offers fruit. It's not a blood sacrifice. It's also not his best. He doesn't worship from the heart. Cain kills Abel. Then you have Isaac, and you have the Philistine, Abimelech, and he fills up the wells of Isaac. Then in Egypt, Pharaoh persecutes the people of God, and he gives a decree that all Hebrew babies must be killed, thrown into the river. And a woman named Jochebed puts a little baby in a reed basket and puts him in the Nile River. What's his name? Moses. Moses. Think about this. The, the head covering that Pharaoh has. Do you remember what's on the head covering? A serpent. Whose team is he on? The devil's team. He's, on, he's the seed of the serpent. When they go into exile... A guy named Haman schemes and tries to have all the Jews in the land murdered. But a Jew named Mordecai hears the plot and tells his niece Esther, perhaps you are in the palace for such a time as this. When they go back into the land, a man named Nehemiah goes back, organizes everybody, has them start building the wall. And there's two guys named Tobias and Sandballot. You never want to name your children Tobias or Sandballot. But anyway, they oppose the building of the wall. And Nehemiah says, well, we're going to continue. Just put on a sheet of mail, and we're going to work with a sword and a shovel, a sword and a trowel. Then come into the New Testament. It's the time for Jesus to be born and three wise men come from the east. They come into the palace of Herod the Great, and Herod tries to ascertain, discern the location that the Messiah would be born. And the Magi are warned by an angel in a dream to go back another way, and what does Herod do? He orders that every baby in Bethlehem under two years of age to be killed. Whose team is he on? The devil's team. Then... Obviously, you have the cataclysmic battle between Christ and the devil, and then it's the time of the apostles. Herod Agrippa, in order to please the Jews, has James arrested, killed with the sword, probably beheaded. Then he puts Peter in jail. Remember what happens? Then an angel comes in the night, blinds everybody's eyes, and brings Peter out of the prison. So what is taking place throughout history, and right now, in this day of the church is this battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. How does the battle end? Well, we're told exactly how it ends, actually. This is, you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read this to you. This is Revelation Chapter 20, John says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and, they were, and, they, and there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then 
death and Hades were thrown also into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was also thrown into the lake of fire. So that's the end of history. So here's what you need to know. And and here's the danger here. What team are you born into? What's your default team? Well, I said it earlier. Your default team is the kingdom of Satan. There's no grandchildren in the children of God. Just because you're born to a Christian parent doesn't mean that you're born into God's kingdom. So Paul says, he says, not all Israel is Israel. Just because, just because your daddy is, is uh, Isaac doesn't mean that you're part of the kingdom of God. You have Esau, right? You have Ishmael, son of Abraham. So you, you go all the way back. Just because your daddy is in the covenant doesn't mean that you are born into the covenant. And because of Adam's sin, we are all born as depraved sinners that are part of Satan's domain. I want to show you this from Ephesians chapter 2. This is so important for you to understand this truth. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is the factory setting of the baby that is born. They look cute. They look sweet, adorable, and wonderful, but guess what? They are born sinners in Adam. This is the default setting. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Notice Paul's description of man before he comes to Christ. He says, we follow the prince of the power of the air. He says that we live in the passions of the flesh. That is our our sinful nature. We are hardwired to disobey God. And he says we naturally belong to the domain of Satan. We are children of wrath. And notice what he calls the system in which Satan operates. Look at verse 2. He says, following the course of this world. Now, underline or circle that word world. It's a generic Greek word. It's the word cosmos. It it transliterates essentially directly into English. It's where we get our word cosmos. And in the Greek language, this word has a huge number of meanings. It, it means a lot of things. So you need to be discerning when you see that word cosmos because it doesn't, it doesn't just mean everything and every, the same thing in every place. It means a lot of different things. For example, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, it refers to a woman's attire or adornment. In... Um, in other places, it, it means the sum total of everything. It can mean the all living creatures, including angels. It can mean uh, the planet in terms of geography. Jesus says, you know, preach the gospel in Mark 16 across the, the whole world. So it means the whole planet. It can mean the earth in contrast to heaven. Jesus was sent into the world from heaven. It can mean humanity in general. That's like John 3.16, for God so loved the world, talking about not just the Jew, but also the the Gentile. He loves the whole world. But there's a nuance to this word that refers to the evil systems of this present age under the control of Satan. That's the negative connotation of this word. So think the things that are evil in this present age under the control of Satan. Now, Jesus said that Satan is the ruler of this world. In John 12, 31, John 16, 11, Paul called Satan the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The apostle John says in 1 John 5, 19, he says, we know that we are from God and the whole world 
lies in the power of the evil one. So Satan operates a world, and it's a world that is in rebellion against God. And I was thinking about this. Really, there's four manifestations of this world that Satan operates. And, and, and you need to think carefully about this because this is the world in which we once lived following the, in this, you know, as, as an unbeliever. Um, this is the world that Satan reigns over. But one is false religions in every form of false righteousness, whether it's Islam, Hinduism, Mormonism, any false religion that denies the deity, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven. All of those false religions, they all have one thing in common, and that is self-righteousness. At the end of the day, you're trying to earn your way to heaven in that religion. Second is the world of vice, the world of vice. It's the world of pornography and abortion and the world of sex trafficking, the world of casinos and gambling. Basically think Las Vegas or Austin, Texas, right? It's, it's the seedy, it's, it's the things that are blatantly against the ethic that is found in the Bible. Third, it's the world of godless ideologies. And, and this is much more insidious, especially, especially to us, because we're so susceptible to it. But it's things like Marxism, evolution, racism, globalism. That's a, that's a big one today. Basically, anything that you're going to learn in the humanities department over at Chapel Hill. Fourth, it's pagan spirituality. It's witchcraft. And this is just overt satanicism, Satanism. It's transcendental, uh, transcendental meditation, tarot cards, palm readings, and all of these things are having a big comeback in this day and age. So Satan operates in these realms. And the reason why I distinguish that is because when, when we're thinking about the, the, that word world, uh, sometimes Christians think, well, I can't enjoy anything. You know, it's wrong for me to go fishing. That's, that's worldly. Or it's wrong for me to go play football with the kids. Or it's wrong for me to enjoy bluebell ice cream or whatever it is. No, 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 no. We're to enjoy the good gifts that God gives us. We're to enjoy the things that are good. God's not called us to just to, to, to hate everything that's on this planet. That's not what the word world means here. The word world talks about the world of evil and sin that the devil operates. Okay, is that clear? All right. Here's, here's inevitably the ethic that's underneath all these things. Paul says this, just listen, jot down this verse, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is what runs through all of these streams. Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you. That's who you were before God pulled you out, before God rescued you. Jesus told the Jews of his day that they were part of this world because they, they, they looked fastidious, they looked religious, but really they were just resting in their own self-righteousness. So Jesus, this is John 8, 23, he said, to the, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, you are of this evil system, I am not of this world. John 8, 44, it's even plainer. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So the world essentially dominates us. Our flesh desires the, thing that, the things that the world offers. And what Satan does over and over, and this is, I'm talking about as, as an unbeliever, as an unbeliever, if you have a fleshly temptation, what does Satan offer you in this world? a sinful way for that temptation to be gratified. But then it's not really gratified, is it? Because then you just want more, and Satan offers the next catch. And that's how guys go down to very dark places. That's how you get 
dictators that kill millions of people is it's a long line of deception and temptation. That's how you get guys in prison that do horrendous crimes. They didn't plan on being there when they were kids. It's a long line of deception and temptation, and the world offers it freely to you. Uh, The mind of the unbeliever, Paul says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We are naturally opposed to righteousness. Now turn over, I wanna show you all one more verse, Colossians chapter one, verse 13. This is such an important verse for your worldview and for understanding the Christian faith and for understanding what true Christianity is. Look at verse 13. He, that's God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That right there is what happens to you spiritually when you trust Christ in faith. When you hear the gospel, when you trust that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only sin satisfaction, there is a transfer of teams that takes place. You are transferred from the domain of darkness and you are put into the kingdom of Christ. It's a complete transformation. Uh, it's like if you were, uh, it's like if you grew up a Tar Heel and then all of a sudden you're a Blue Devil. I mean, you're just, it's, just, it, it, it's, it's two different teams. And that's what God does. He, he takes you from like an like a iron from the fire and he plucks you out, and he puts you into the kingdom of his beloved son, and there you have the forgiveness of sins. And this, I think, is what surprises so many Christians, is when they get saved, all of a sudden their life is different. And then your family and friends start treating you a little differently. You respond to your surroundings differently. You now no longer want to go do the things that you used to do. You're going to a Bible study on Tuesday night. Why are you doing that? What in the world? You know, you don't want to go on this, on this guy's trip to, to Cozumel? No. I'm, I'm, I'm there with the missus. I'm doing the, I'm doing the Bible study on Tuesday night with those guys. And it surprises people. Um, and it often surprises you. And it surprises you that you are all of a sudden on this battlefield. And I think that's something that we as believers need to realize because I think a lot of believers haven't woken up yet to this reality that now you're on a different team. A.W. Tozer, who's a famous pastor in the 20th century, listen to this quote. He said, the vast majority of evangelicals believe the world is a playground rather than a battlefield. So a lot of Christians still think things are the same. Well, I'm saved I'm, I'm in the, I'm, I've trusted Christ, but, but my situation isn't all that different. It's very different. It's very different. You've been transferred into a different kingdom. So now with that in the background, I want you to turn back to John 15, John 15. So now you understand the situation of the Christian, that the Christian is called out of the world, called into Christ's kingdom, They have a completely new domain that they operate in now. And Jesus basically says this, verse 17. The Christian has a responsibility to love other Christians. This is the third time that he's said this in this discourse. Look at verse 17. He says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. The other Christians are those on your team you have that common enemy. And that's one of the things that unites us. Uh, yes, we're united in that we all believe the same gospel, we all worship the same God, but we also have the same enemy. We're also opposed by the same devil in the demonic realm. So look around, look around. This is your team. You might not have chosen this. You know, sometimes you think that, you know, why, why is that person a Christian? You know, Paul says, not, not many wise, not many of noble birth, 
Uh, not many intelligent, but yet God calls the weak of the world to shame the strong. And God raises different types of people up, and that constitutes the Christian team, the church. And it should be a diverse group of people from every background, every people. And God brings you together, and you have these things in common that we're all in this same battle. And that's one of the things I love when I go to, go to conferences or travel around. You meet another Christian. They have the same beliefs that you do. They have many of the same experiences as you do. They have many of the same battles because they're being opposed by the same devil who's opposing you. And so we are called to love one another. We are to have this love for the, for the Christian community, those that are on our team. Now, here's what's fascinating. The Christian community is known by its love. The world in this passage is known by its hate. We are known by our love. The world is known by its hate. Look at verse 18. The world hates Christ. Jot that down next to verse 18 and remember that. So important to remember. The world hates Christ. If the world hates you, disciples, know that it has hated me before it hated you. The word hate, Greek word missio, means to have strong aversion, to detest, to hate. I think about when a cockroach comes out in our house. There is a strong aversion. There is a deep hatred and an ordering of our boys to immediately kill it. <laughs> think about this. The world, Jesus says, hates me. That's how they feel, they despise me. Jesus says, this is a prediction that we're gonna see in John chapter 16. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he says, when I'm killed, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. When Jesus was on the cross, remember what the, uh, the Jewish leader said? You saved others. Come down and save yourself. They mocked him. They rejoiced that he was on the cross. They were having a field day. They loved it. They sat there, and, and in their hate, they relished the blood that flowed from his hands and feet. Remember in Chronicles of Narnia when Aslan dies and all those horrid creatures are celebrating and, and throwing a party that, that Aslan is dead? That's the response. It is, it is utter wickedness and hate towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do they hate him? Why do they hate the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever asked that question? Jesus tells us why. We've already covered it actually. John Seven, verse seven, Jesus tells his brothers, he says, the world cannot hate you because you're part of the world, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. That's the Jesus that you don't see in today's culture, is it? I testify about the world that its deeds, its works are evil. Do you know what Jesus' message was? His, his main message. Matthew chapter four, verse 17. Jesus goes from the temptation, goes into Galilee, saying what? Repent, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What do you repent from? Answer, it's very simple, sin. You repent from sin. And Jesus went out. He told the self-righteous. He said, repent of your self-righteousness. He told the woman in adultery, go and sin no more. He said, repent from your sin and turn to me. What is the normal response when you're confronted with the reality of your sin? What's the normal response? John 3.20 for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, 
lest his work should be exposed. So the normal response is, you hate the light. You hate the representation of righteousness because it exposes your immorality. It exposes your faults. Now, listen very clearly. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus loves sinners. Loves them, loves us. We are sinners. We still sin. But he hates sin. And he always testified against it. He always testified against it. He, he wasn't easy on sin. You know, he dined with sinners. He dined with sinners. He died with publicans and prostitutes. But he didn't, he didn't let them stay in their sin. He called them to repentance. And that's the message that the, that the church is missing today. We, we want to affirm sinners in their sin and say nothing about it. No, 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 we love the sinner, but the loving thing to do is to call them to repentance with the truth, to speak the truth in love. And that's what Jesus always did. And by the way, on the last day when Jesus returns, what's he going to do with sin? He's going to judge it. He's going to judge it. And every sinner that is not under the blood and righteousness of Christ will be under judgment. Jesus is very serious about sin. Very serious. And I, and I emphasize this because this is why they crucified him. This is why they crucified him. It wasn't just because he preached the, the message of God's love. It's because he called out people's sin. And people today say all the time, you know, you Christian, if you just had the right tone, if you just said things nice enough, the world would accept you. You know, the problem is you're just a, you know, a bigoted backwoods Neanderthal. But if you just were nice and, and wore the right clothes and had a smile on your face, uh, we would accept you. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Go read Romans on a college campus. Go read the Gospel of John in the Senate chambers and see what the response, just go, just go read it. What's the response? Antagonism and hate. You see, the world actually hates the real Jesus. And for that reason, the world hates Christians. Look at verse 19. Right next to verse 19, the world hates Christians. And I don't mean the, the pseudo kind, uh, the kind that call themselves Christians and believe everything the world's be world believes. I mean the Christians that believe the Bible and apply it. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. If you're, if you're actually of the world, the world will approve of you. That word love we looked at this last week, is phileo. It, it means to have affection for, to, to cherish. You know, I kind of think of that song, you know, he's a jolly good fellow. Yeah, the, if, if you go with the world, they're gonna lift you up. They're gonna, they're, they're gonna esteem you. They're gonna affirm you. So question, can you be a Christian and affirm the values of the world? No, you cannot. You have to choose. Choose this day whom you will serve. You have to choose. Here are your options. You can go with the world and be praised by the world and at the end of the day go to hell. Or you can go with God, be hated by the world, and in the end inherit his blessedness forever. There's two roads, Jesus said, remember? There is a broad way that leads to destruction, and many are on it. There's a narrow way that leads to life, and few are on it. If you're on the broad way, you will be praised. Oh, there's such, you know, there, there's such a, uh, a hospitable Christian. They're not like those fundamentals over there. They accept, they accept all of our sin just as we are. They, they live just like us. 
That's the broad road. The narrow road says, take up your cross daily and follow me, Jesus says. And, if, and oh, by the way, you're gonna have to lose your life for me. That is the narrow road. That's the true Christian path. And that's verse 19, second part. He says, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is your new identity. This is that Colossians 1 verse that we looked at. You are no longer part of the world. Christ has chosen you out of the world. Look, at, look up at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So Christ has chosen his disciples. He's called us and he's called us to follow him, to take up our cross daily and walk in the narrow way. And so you begin to live. This is, this is the Christian life as you begin to walk in the way of righteousness. Little by little, it kind of surprises you almost when you become a Christian. It, it surprises you because your affections change and you begin to walk in the righteous way. You begin to delight in the word of God. You begin to delight in doing the Lord's will. And all of a sudden, you find animosity coming at you from the world. I, I read a commentator this week, D.A. Carson. He said, the world is a society of rebels and therefore finds it hard to tolerate those who are in joyful allegiance to the king to whom all loyalty is due. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who des desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So people in the world see your righteous life, they see you following Christ, and they don't like it. Why don't they like it? Because your righteous life convicts their conscience. That's why. Your righteous, they, they, deep down they know that they're in rebellion against God. And them seeing your righteous life convicts them, makes them feel bad, makes them feel uncomfortable. And that's why the world hates Christians, true Christians. This is what Jesus says, John 17, 14. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So the Christian holds to the word, the world hates them. John says, the apostle, 1 John 3, 12, listen, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did Cain murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So it's your righteous life. You, you don't even have to go out and tell people to repent. You don't even have to go out and call out sin. If you live a righteous life, you will be hated and persecuted by the world. We need to get that into our heads. And, and here's the world's response. The world will try to do two things when they see your righteous life. Here's the first. The world will attempt to corrupt you. That's the first thing. They want to bring you down to their level. If you're at the fraternity house, th those guys, they will, want, they will not like your righteous life and they will wanna bring you down. And oftentimes, if there's a righteous, righteous guy, uh, a, a girl will see that and say, I wanna bring that pure man down. Or a righteous woman. Men will say, I wanna bring that pure woman down. And so we need to watch out. Listen to what the proverb uh, says. Proverbs 4.25, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right, to the left. Turn your feet from all evil. So you wanna resist the world's attempts to corrupt you. There's this um, scene in Pilgrim's Progress when Christian and faithful, it's an allegory of the Christian life, and they're on their way on the narrow road to 
what's called the celestial city, which represents heaven. And on the way, Christian and faithful have to pass through what is called Vanity Fair. And Vanity Fair is Las Vegas. It's basically all the corruption of the world, all of the sensuality, all of the licentiousness, all of the, the, the seedy things that the world has to offer, it's all in Vanity Fair. And so they start to walk through the city and everybody in Vanity Fair is, is calling the Christian, calling the faithful, say, come buy this, come do this, come do that. And they just keep walking on the narrow way through the fair. How do you think the people respond? They hate it. They hate it. Uh, they call out to them. And this is, this is what Bunyan says that Christian and faithful do. They put their fingers in their ears. They quote Psalm 119.37, turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. And then when asked to buy something, they reply, Proverbs 23.23, we buy the truth. People hated it. And since they can't corrupt them, what they do is they grab them, they throw them in jail, and they try them, and they kill them. They kill them. And that's the second thing. If they can't corrupt you, if the world can't corrupt you, it will persecute you. The world persecutes the righteous. Look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. That word is actually not servant. It's the same word we looked at last week, doulos, slave. Slave is not greater than his master. And Jesus is reminding them that earlier in the upper room when he washed the disciples' feet, demonstrating humility, he told the disciples, a slave is not greater than his master. If I'm humble, you need to be humble. But here he, it's in reference to persecution. Look at the second part of verse 20. He said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You are identified with me. You are not greater than me. If I was persecuted for being righteous, you will be persecuted. You will be persecuted. And the disciples that he's talking to, guess what? They were all persecuted. They were all persecuted. Now, this is church tradition, so this isn't necessarily verified, but this is, this is what church fathers and historians have passed down. Well, we know that, um, because it's in Acts, that James, son of Zebedee, was put to death with the sword by Herod Agrippa. We know that Paul was beheaded, probably in Rome, 66 AD. According to tradition, Peter was crucified upside down in Rome under Nero, again, 66 AD. That Andrew went up into the Soviet Union and Turkey, where he was eventually crucified. Thomas went all the way to India, where legend has that he was speared to death by four soldiers. Philip preached the gospel in Asia Minor and was cruelly put to death when the wife of a Roman proconsul was converted. Matthew according to legend, was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew traveled to Arabia and Ethiopia where he died as a martyr. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned and then clubbed to death. Matthias, remember he was the replacement for Judas, was burned alive in Syria. And John the Apostle was the only one that we know of who died of natural causes, but he in exile on the Isle of Patmos. So Jesus says, they persecute me, they will persecute you. Are you ready? I mean, have we come to grips with that reality? Do you still want the world's favor and to be liked by the world? Now, as we are witnessing in this world and standing for Christ, notice at the very end of verse 20, this is just an encouragement, I think. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. As you stand for the truth, as you stand for Christ, some God saves, and they respond to the message, 
And these, these are those whom we love. These are those who are called out of darkness and into the light that, that, are, that, that come into the church. But I think we need to reflect about this and think about the type of Christian that we are and the type of church that we should be. Because there's a type of Christianity that expects and desires the world's applause, isn't there? Have you seen that type of Christianity? That says, you know what, we're going to be basically just like the world because we want the world to like us. How do you see it? Well, they sing just secular songs in the worship service. You see pastors that curse like sailors. You see people up on the worship team wearing immodest clothing. Uh, you see churches and Christians adopting the world's ideologies and trying to, to marry them with the Bible, trying to find some sort of proof text to, to validate what the world is saying. You see it all the time. But here's the problem. One, it's sinful. But two, when that happens, the church loses its witness. You know what? I can go to a concert right over here in the park and I can get the exact same thing that your church is doing. You're no different from the world. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be the light of the world, Jesus said, that we are to have a distinct witness. Let me give you a quote from a, a theologian from 1910. It was over 115 years ago, basically. He said, the disciples must be in the world, but not of it. They had been chosen out of it for the purpose of bearing witness to it. And to become assimilated to it again would be to extinguish their power of witness. So friends, God calls us to holiness. God calls us into his kingdom and therefore we are to be distinct from the world. All of that, all of that evil, we are to be distinct and godly. So in that spirit, let me give you four points of application. Four points of application. First, understand that Christianity is a crucified life. That's Galatians 6.14. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Your, your past loves in this world are done if you're a Christian. You've been crucified to them. Second, Repent of loving the world. We need to think about, we need to do heart work here and think about our own lives. Do we love things that are in the world? Do we love godless things? The apostle James says, James 4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So repent, repent of loving the things that are in the world. Third, develop your affections for God and not the world. Love the things of God, not the things of the world. This is John's warning, 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So love the things of God. Develop loves for the things of God, not for the things of this world. And then fourth, this is, everything I've laid down is very challenging. It's very difficult what Christ has said. But know this, when you are persecuted by the world, you are blessed. This Luke 6.22 Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So you, you have to think eternally. You have to think with a heavenly perspective. When you are persecuted for standing for the truth, for standing for Christ, your reward is great in heaven. 
Now, when I was in seminary, there was a, uh, a writing from one of the early church fathers. We have no idea who he is. But he wrote a letter to uh, a gentleman by the name of Diognetus. And uh, we had to work on translating it really hard, very, very difficult Greek. But there's a section in this letter where he says this, and I wanted to, to conclude by reading this to you. He says, Christians dwell in their native cities, yet as sojourners. They share in everything as citizens and endure all things as aliens. Every foreign country is to them a fatherland and every fatherland a, for, a foreign soil. They live in the flesh, but not according to the flesh. They pass their time on earth, but exercise their citizenship in heaven. They obey the enacted laws, and by their private lives, they overcome the laws. They love all men and are persecuted by all men. They are unknown and yet condemned. They are put to death and yet raised to life. They are beggars and yet make many rich. They lack all things and yet abound in all things. I have been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified to the world. The world has been crucified to me. That's the Christian. That's the Christian. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are stunned by this truth that you've called us out of the world, that you've called us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, but yet there's this reality of the battle that is present, that the world who hates you also hates us, and that the world will persecute us. And so, Lord, may we come to grips with this reality, that we are in a different kingdom, that we will be persecuted, but in the end, all will be made right. Your justice will prevail. Your kingdom is forever and ever. Your blessings are eternal. So Lord, may we live in this life with a heavenly perspective. And Lord, may we live godly lives, holy lives. May we repent of all worldliness. May we put aside shows that we shouldn't be watching or, or influences that shouldn't be influencing us or habits that are part of Satan's domain, Lord. May we repent of all these things and may we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray all this in Christ's name for your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.